When I was growing up, televisions had picture tubes. And sometimes the picture on that tube wasn't clear. It was snowy or it was wavy. Anybody here remember picture tubes? And there was often one sure fix for a wavy, snowy picture tube. All we did was walk up to the cabinet that housed the television and we beat on it. We gave it a couple of good whacks and the picture cleared up. Anybody ever happened? Did that happen to anybody here? Or is it just my West Virginia picture? Said I thought this was a universal truth. Anyway, I was thinking that sometimes as we're living our lives Monday through Saturday, all the things that we encounter in our lives, all the things that require our attention, all the conflicts, the countless choices and decisions that we have to make, sometimes the clear image of Jesus gets a little fuzzy before our eyes, a little snowy, a little obscured. And so we come here to worship week by week to get a couple of whacks of, of the gospel, right? So, so that we are reminded of the, the beauty of Christ and the, and the wonder of the gospel and, and his image before our eyes uh, is cleared. Martin Luther famously wrote, Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. So I stand on, on good ground I love beating us up week by week with the good news of the gospel because it does make the picture of Christ so clear before our eyes. Luther wrote this as well. The highest of all God's commands is this, that we ever hold up before our eyes the image of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He must daily be to our hearts the perfect mirror in which we behold how much God loves us. Do not let this mirror and throne of grace be torn away from before your eyes. Christ, always before our eyes. That's really the beauty and the mystery of this table that's before us this morning, the Lord's Supper. It puts Jesus before our eyes. It puts Jesus in our hands to touch and in our mouths to taste after we with our ears have heard the good news of the gospel. And in all of it, we see mirrored and reflected the great love that God has for all of us. And so you and I must be in awe of and hungry for this table the mystery of it, and God's grace to us through it. That's what I want us to talk about this morning as we return to Acts chapter 2, now in our 12th week of studying the means of grace. When you found Acts chapter 2, either in your own Bible or in the pew Bible in the rack in front of you, would you please stand so we might honor the word of the Lord by hearing it read together. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, this is the word of the Lord. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time around your word. Thank you for your promise that where your word is read and heard and proclaimed, that is a place of your blessing on your people. So bless us now through your word. Bless us through the table as we come to it later. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this morning we're going to add to the list of the means of grace at which we have already looked, those being the the word of God and prayers. We're going to add now the Lord's Supper. These are the ordinary means, the ordinary ways through which God pours his grace out upon us. God's unmerited favor toward us, he pours out through his grace. And the grace of God is most clearly seen, experienced by us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. John writes in his gospel, chapter 1, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we can say then that all these means of grace, the Word of God, prayers, the Lord's Supper, they take us to the person of Christ. That's why we love them so much. That's why I've been preaching on the means of grace now for, for 12 weeks. They take us to Jesus. These are the, the means through which God ordinarily works in all times. And in all places to bring the grace of Christ to his people and bring his people to Christ. They're ordinary things, but they represent extraordinary realities. The preaching of the word of God, preaching the gospel in particular, it's a very ordinary thing. It can be done in any place. It can be done in a cave. It can be done in a cathedral. But yet the word of God sets before us the extraordinary. And when the spirit of God joins the word of God, extraordinary things happen in our hearts, in your heart, in my heart. And it brings about extraordinary transformation in each of us, in our passions, in our actions. Prayer, it's ordinary activity. You can do it any time in any place. And if you and I are obedient to Scripture, we'll do it at all times. Very ordinary. But prayer accomplishes extraordinary things because we pray to a God 
who is extraordinary, who, who listens to the prayers of his people, who pray in the name of Jesus, who is praying for us while we're praying for him. These are ordinary things, but they represent extraordinary realities. And so this morning, we add to those the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. It's made up of very ordinary elements, bread and wine. But these ordinary elements provide extraordinary, beyond their size, especially the ones we're taking today, nourishment for our souls. Luke reports to you and me in verse 42, after his very careful investigation that this church in Jerusalem of brand new believers devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. That little definite article there, the, lets us know that, that Luke is referring to the, the actual celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we see it's accompanied in verse 42 but by the word and by prayer. And so we know he's talking about the Lord's Supper celebrated in the context of worship. Then if you look down in verse 46, you see again there that even that was enough. enough. These, these believers went to one another's homes and they broke bread there again as well. And they specifically set aside a portion of bread and wine even during those meals, usually at the end of them, to celebrate the Lord's Supper even in their homes. Now this is devotion. And so we ask again, why were they so devoted to the Lord's Supper? There's no evidence here that coming to the table in this way and with this rapidity and this frequency was prescribed or legislated. There's no thou shalt. No, it's not here. From what we read, it just appears to be a, an organic response. It's something these early believers, they felt com compelled to do. And that compulsion that they felt to come to the table of the Lord must be connected to what they experienced when they came around the Lord's table together. Your addictions in your life, your compulsions in your life, whatever they are, whether they are good or whether they are bad, they are not something that somebody has to force you to do. Quite the opposite. They are, are, are things that, that people need to prevent you from doing. You, you, you're addicted to them. You're compelled to do them because of, of whatever feeling you have as a result of doing them. And so it must have been with the Lord's Supper, with these early believers, God must have really graced them when they came around the table. The Lord must have really met them at the table. And so every day they met together around the table of the Lord to eat together and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Why? I think it's because of the mystery of the table. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning. The, the mystery of the Lord's table. We call this the table of the Lord, a sacrament. And that's because the ancients, 
who were translating the New Testament out of the Greek in which it was written into Latin, they chose the word sacrament to translate the word in the New Testament that we translate mystery. Calvin writes in his Institutes, For whenever the old translator wished to render into Latin the Greek word mysterion, especially where it refers to divine things, he translated it sacrament. For instance, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that through Christ, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. The Latin would translate it, that God has made known to us the sacrament of his will. Similarly, in 1 Timothy 3, we read, God, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. The Latin would translate it, Great is the sacrament of godliness. Ephesians 6, Paul prays that his mouth would be opened so that he could boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The Latin would say, the sacrament of the gospel. One more, Colossians 1, speaks of the riches of the glory of Of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Latin would read, the glory of this sacrament, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Calvin writes that sacrament came to be applied to those signs which reverently represented sublime and spiritual things. What I'm suggesting in all this is that the devotion that the early church had to the table of the Lord is connected to the sacrament of the table, the mystery of the table, to what is inexpressible about it. As one of my seminary professors used to say about the Lord's Supper, some things are better experienced than explained. And that's true. Some things are better experienced than explained. I don't know how you have tended to to look upon the Lord's table. Through for some of you, your many years of coming to the table of the Lord time and time again. I suppose that depends to a large extent on your church background. I do know that many of what we call evangelical churches have a very low view of the Lord's Supper. They've kind of latched onto the words that Jesus spoke, do this in remembrance of me. They've focused on those words to the exclusion of everything else that's said about the Lord's Supper. And so then on the rare occasions that they do celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's just like a memorial service where those participating are supposed to work up sad feelings for the fact that that Jesus died for us. And when that's the case, we're the ones doing the acting. It's about what we bring to the table of the Lord, our sadness, and not about what the table brings to us or who the table brings to us, the Lord Jesus Christ, or the grace when God meets us there. And so there's no sacrament. There's no mystery. Not so long ago, I had a pastor friend of mine, much younger than I am, which is not difficult to be these days. 
But he was being recruited, he and his church, to be a, a satellite location for a much larger megachurch. And if he made this switch, one thing that was going to be required of him was that he was going to have to move the Lord's Supper into the church lobby for people to pick it up if they were interested on their way out the door to their cars. The idea was that the Lord's Supper was an interruption to the flow of the service. And the talk about you know, eating the body of Christ, drinking the blood of Christ, that might be offensive to people, especially to visitors who might not understand it. Now, this is a megachurch called uh, an evangelical church, you know, 20,000 people. So I pleaded with him, don't, please don't. And we talked about the mystery of the table. And in the end, the Lord convinced him, here's the good news. He did not become a satellite and he did not move the Lord's table into the lobby of the church. And God's people said, amen for that. And I know that's an extreme example, but it's indicative of the very low view that so many churches take of this beautiful, mysterious means of grace. The mystery, it's real. It's difficult to explain. So, I believe the mystery is evidenced by the devotion of the early church to the Lord's table. And I think that that mystery is further evidenced by Satan's attempt to twist, to obscure, so that Christ and the gospel cannot be seen, or at least they become fuzzy or indistinct. If nothing were really happening at the table, why would our enemy bother to destroy it? You know what I'm going to ask you to do now. It's to fill in the blank that we fill in, fill in so often here. You know what to do. Whatever God ordains, Satan. Whatever God ordains, Satan. So we fast forward. Not too many years between this church in Jerusalem and the church in Corinth that the Apostle Paul had planted. And we see very quickly how abuse and contention and misunderstanding enveloped the Lord's Supper. Why? Again, because what God intends to use to grace us, our enemy seeks to pervert. And so it is with the Lord's Supper. The, the meal that was supposed to unite this meal, supposed to unite people, Bring together those who stand in equal need of the redeeming, renewing, restoring grace of God in Jesus. No matter who they are, no matter where they are from, no matter what they have, no matter what they don't have. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The enemy of our souls in the church seeks to pervert and destroy it. And so this table that's supposed to represent the gospel became in fact the anti-gospel. And it became in that church in Corinth an opportunity to divide and isolate and deprive believers of the grace of God in the table of the Lord. The class conscious church in Corinth celebrated the Lord's Supper in a class conscious way that highlighted the wealth of some and the poverty 
of others. And during what came to be known as the love feast that preceded the Lord's Supper, we would call it a potluck dinner, people were even getting drunk. And so the Apostle Paul writes this correction in a letter, his first letter to the Corinthians. And it really has become the most extensive teaching we have on the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation because sometimes the, the fresh words give us a fresh hearing of it. So this is what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians about the Lord's table. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats or drinks this bread or, or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That's why many of you are weak and sick, and some even have died. How quickly the enemy, confused, perverted, opposed the true meaning of the table among God's people. And if you know anything about church history, you know this table has been a source of contention ever since. A source of division, and in far too many cases, a source of death for those who disagreed with a particular view. Our enemy attempting to rob it of its sacredness and mystery and the grace of God through it. He doesn't want us to have it. He doesn't want us to have it. Paul attaches a warning to the Lord's table, and the very existence of the warning suggests to us that something sacramental, something mysterious takes place at the Lord's table that must be protected. I believe that the early church experienced this must-be-protected mystery. And that's why they were so devoted to the breaking of the bread and the Lord's Supper. I want to finish by 
quoting part of a hymn to you. It was written by Horatio Bonar. He was a famous 19th century Scottish preacher and author and poet. So interesting when you think about his heritage. He's one in a line of family ministers that served the church in Scotland for 364 years. Can you imagine? This is the hymn that he wrote about the Lord's Supper. Here, here. Here, O my Lord, I see thee face to face. Here would I touch and handle things unseen. Here grasp with firmer hand the eternal grace. And all my weariness upon thee lean. Here would I feed upon the word of God. Here drink with thee the royal wine of heaven. Here would I lay aside each earthly load. Here taste afresh the calms of sin forgiven. Too soon we rise. The symbols disappear. The feast, though not the love, is past and gone. The bread and wine remove, but thou art here. Nearer than ever, still my shield and son. That's the mystery of the Lord's Supper. Face to face with Jesus. And even after the symbols disappear, still the grace of God is at work in us. Nearer to us even than he was before. Christ more fully formed in us. Because here at this table we are acted upon. Here at this table we are graced by God. May we see Christ in this table. His beauty. His mystery. The mystery of the gospel. And experience the reality of Christ in us. Our hope of glory. Amen. Would you take out your bulletin? Because I've included in it this week uh, a prayer. I'm, I'm going to read it, but uh, you read along and pray along with me. It's a long prayer, but how beautifully it's going to prepare each of us to come to the table of the Lord. So let's pray together. God of all good, I bless thee, bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast. And though I am unworthy to sit down as guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate but must come to thee in love by thy spirit. Enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior.
while I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of his design, draw near, Obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all men that I do for myself. Gladly, in faith, reverence and love, receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, Infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy dwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen.